It's no secret that the average American has lost a significant amount of trust in our institutions. Everything from Hollywood to church leaders to public health entities have made large mistakes over the past few years, or in some cases, outright lied to the public. As a result, we now see a rising sense of skepticism among the everyday citizen, some of which is healthy and others is extremely unhealthy. This begs the question, can our institutions be reformed? If so, which ones? More importantly, can we build new institutions that can be trusted, or is every institution doomed to become progressive and secular in the end? Welcome to Forge and Anvil, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations about culture, theology, and politics to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I am host of this podcast, and joining me tonight, I've got uh, three amazing guests, the first of which, uh, returning yet again, is Jeff Wright. So, Jeff, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and those who are not yet familiar with you. Well, hey there, Connor. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, glad to be on here with you and these guys. Uh, small town pastor. Uh, teach a little bit, have a bunch of kids, do some farming. Um, not nothing too uh, dramatic, but it suits me. Awesome. Well, welcome back, and we also have Nate Fisher for a first time on the show. So, Nate, uh, same task. Well, glad to uh, glad to join this for the first time. So, I'm in uh, Dallas, Texas. I uh, run a venture firm focused on anything with a right wing focus. I also founded American co-founded American Reformer which is both a journal and an organization expressly dedicated to fighting for evangelical institutions and fighting against leftward drift. And I have a wife and four kids and a fifth on the way. Awesome. Well, congrats on that. And of course, welcome to the show. And then we do have Brandon Lansdowne as well. So Brandon, again, same task. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Glad to be here. Uh, I am in Springfield, Missouri, southwest part of the state. And uh Pastor of Church, uh, Coram Deo, and also am the owner and I guess head roaster now of Reformation Coffee because we have two because I've, I've trained my son uh, to do uh, a lot of the roasting as well. And so uh, as we continue to grow and, and get busier, uh, he, he's doing more and more roasting now alongside me. And so uh, he's one of two kids that I have just married off my daughter, uh, who's the oldest of the two, uh, just two weeks ago. And so we're still, uh, it was, it was, it was a good day, but we're, we're still, uh, you know, getting our, getting our feet set in that, that new, uh, dynamic. But, um, yeah, I've been married for, uh, this December will be 24 years to my high school sweetheart. And so awesome. that's most of what I do from the day to day. Awesome. Well, welcome. Glad to have you. Before we get started, I want to go ahead and plug uh, the episode that we just recorded last night with Alex Newman. We talked all about the history of the deep state and globalism, specifically in American history. Definitely well worth listening, so be sure to check that out. Also, like and share this video to boost us in the algorithms. Follow us on Twitter at Forge and A for additional content and updates on the show. Share this video on Twitter slash X, whatever you prefer to call it, uh, because we are live there as well. But if you want to join us in the chat, be sure to jump over to YouTube or rumble 
where we can actually see your chat. So uh, we appreciate you joining us. Either way, let's go ahead and dive into our topic. So I had already booked uh, both Nate and Brandon to join me to talk about the idea of rebuilding institutions and what that looks like, because that's a process in itself. And uh, uh, conveniently and unfortunately, the SBC kind of gave us uh, some examples to point to over the last uh, last couple weeks with some uh, some leadership flaws being on display among the SBC. So for those who are not already familiar, um, many of you have probably seen that the Nashville Transgender Manifesto was leaked by commentator Stephen Crowder. And uh, as a result, uh, one of the individuals who is in leadership of the SBC uh, underneath the ERLC, which, uh, Jeff, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this information, but basically the ERLC is the lobbying arm of the SBC. So they are tasked with uh, supposedly advancing a biblical worldview uh, through legislation um, by lobbying uh, legislators. And uh, Brent Leatherwood is also a father of uh, some students that go to the Covenant School that had the shooting. To my knowledge, his children were not in harm's way, but uh, he is a parent nonetheless. And so he's kind of been given a platform through all this, and he has unfortunately used his platform to push for uh, gun control and a lot of legislation that members of the SBC uh, absolutely would not be in support of. Um, so, you know, many of these SBC churches and church members, uh, they provide tithes to the SBC and a fraction of that money goes to the ERLC and to pay Brent Leatherwood to uh, be employed to supposedly lobby for uh, legislation that the SBC and its members would like to see pass. And unfortunately, it seems that Leatherwood uh, wants to instead push for gun control in the state of Tennessee. In addition to that, he also lobbied to keep the manifesto hidden, which many individuals have been frustrated uh, to no ends with the lack of transparency in that entire situation. And Brent Leatherwood is one of the key figures behind that. And he's uh, been involved with our governor here in Tennessee to really uh, use the incident to push for red flag laws. Um, but in addition to this, Leatherwood has also opposed some abortion abolition uh, abolition legislation that was being uh, being in the works in some other states as well. So this is not a one-off incident for Leatherwood. It's not necessarily just because he was feeling emotional because of the um, how close the Covenant school shooting was to his home. Um, you know, ultimately, it seems that this is just a trend. And so if you are interested, I have put in the description a petition that uh, I started um, to uh, oust Leatherwood, uh, or I should say to encourage the ERLC to rethink Leatherwood's position. Um, so we're asking that uh, if you sign it, that you be a member of an SBC church or a pastor of an SBC church, because we want to make sure that every signature has weight behind it. Um, it'd be a lot easier to just get signatures from any person because a lot of people are emotional about this situation and would love to see some accountability. But uh, we think it will mean more if every single signature is from someone who is actually a part of the SBC. I'd rather have quality over quantity as far as that is concerned. But either way, you can find that legislation or excuse me, that uh, petition uh, down in the description of this episode. And so I appreciate you doing that. But uh, um, 
That being said, that's kind of the, the quick update on the SBC as far as Leatherwood is concerned. Now, there's been some other stuff with uh, with um, Barber as well. Um, Jeff, I'll go ahead and turn that over to you if you want to kind of explain that situation. Well, I'm not sure how much your listeners will be familiar. Uh, Bart Barber is uh, the current SBC president. He's in his second term. Uh, Bart is sort of this guy who sells himself as a hayseed local pastor, um, but his his tenure has been marked by some pretty significant failures. The um, the executive committee of the SBC, which is the SBC uh, every day of the year that uh, annual meeting is not being held. So like 360 something days uh, of the year, uh, it's the executive committee. They're about bankrupt uh, because of the foolhardy way they've handled sex abuse um, accusations. Uh, Bart continues to betray the, the abuse claimants that, sort of elevated him, buoyed him to uh, his election. But the, the most recent thing is Bart uh, is pretty clearly a petty man, and he does not uh, he does not take well to being questioned. So there's a gentleman by the name of Dusty Devers, who is a committed abortion abolitionist. And, um, you know, Dusty's a great guy, and Dusty's a very effective communicator. You just don't get into an argument with Dusty and come away feeling like you bested him, you know. Well, in, in his conflict with Bart Barber, and they have an intense conflict, he also has the tremendous unfair advantage of being right. And so uh, Barber continues to coddle the idea that women who seek abortions are always and exclusively victims. And even scratching that narrative a little bit shows you how foolish it is. And Dusty has done more than scratched it. And you can see that Bart... I mean, it just it just outrages him that someone would push back. So what came out last week is that Bart, who lives in Texas, sent a hundred dollar donation to an Oklahoma uh, Senate race where Dusty Devers is running uh, for the for the position, sent it to uh, to the left of center candidate running against Dusty. And so what you see is. Uh, you know, these men show you regularly they're incompetent. They show you regularly they're up to no good. The other thing that kind of comes out with this is they're just very small. They're very small. Uh, and honestly, I mean, I, you know, I know I'm speaking for myself here. don't want to assign this to these guys, but they are reprehensible. And these are the sort of people who take good institutions built by faithful predecessors, corrupt them by uh, basically turning them into a platform for their own petty grievances. And Bart Barber's an incarnation of that that paradigm. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's a lot of other, uh, you know, incidences since then where, where Bart has been. Uh, he, he was caught saying that the SBC president nor the SBC endorses political candidates. And of course, uh, the uh, the filings show that he supported Dusty Deaver's uh, opponent in the primary. Luckily, Deaver's still uh, won in the primary, and so he's heading on to the general, and he's probably going to win that most likely given the um, the makeup of his district, which is wonderful. Um, that tends to be what happens when Bart um, messes with Dusty. Dusty usually comes out on top anyway. <laughs> yes, and we see that actually something that's been kind of encouraging is a lot of individuals now that this has been uncovered, um, a lot of individuals across the uh, the uh, network that we have on kind of Christian Twitter have been donating to uh, Devers' campaign. So honestly, I, he's kind of uh, refilled his coffers. So that's that's been a wonderful uh, 
un, unseen benefit of this whole scandal. Um, but the unfortunate thing is uh, Barber got caught. And uh, the reality is he may not uh, say that he endorsed someone, but uh, his uh, Deaver's opponent did use a direct quote from Barber uh, talking about how uh, how Devers is apparently obsessed with jailing young women or something to that effect. You you can look it up online. It, it, Re the Republic Sentinel they put out a good piece um, if you want to get the full scoop there. Um, but I just thought I'd I'd throw in those details as well. So uh, obviously, like I said, the SBC has given us examples of uh, of rot within an institution. Um, the SBC, I think, has a lot of good things going for it. Um, you know, we saw uh, with the with the ousting of uh, Rick Warren, um, that uh, the SBC still has some good conservative individuals that want to see uh, a positive impact. So I'm not wanting to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. Um, I just wanted to kind of give you the audience an update on the SBC, because for those that don't know, it is one of the largest, if not the largest, I believe it is the largest um, conservative uh, denomination in America. And so it has a lot of weight to just our culture in general. And it is kind of one of a few stop gates that can really uh, make a, a positive impact on preventing some of this woke, um, destructive uh, ideas that's kind of spreading all across our nation. So um, that's why the SBC matters to you, even if you're not in the SBC. Um, now, again, I wanted to use that as the example to talk about institutional rot because our, our larger topic tonight is whether or not we can build new institutions as well as reform current ones. Um, so Nate and Brandon, I want to kind of turn it over to, to you guys and either of you can pick this up. Um, just any initial reactions to the whole SBC uh, scandal and just any additional thoughts that you want to throw out there before we kind of dive into our, our uh, more broad discussion. Go ahead, Brandon. All right. Well, yeah, I, I grew up, within the Southern Baptist Church my whole entire life. And uh, we just <clears throat> departed from another church just a couple of years ago that I was an elder at and planted a new church that we made we made the very intentional decision not to join up with the SBC just because of the direction that it seemed like, you know, it, it's, the, it's the liberal drift that everyone said didn't exist, but you could see. And it wasn't an easy decision. It was... Uh, you know, again, something that that I took very seriously and, and thought and prayed about a lot. But I think the the path that we have seen it take is the one that was anticipated. And you know, I I think it's a good question. I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I think my actions to 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 a certain extent would say that I um, I don't generally think this way. That that the rot isn't um, isn't sound like we can't salvage it. Um, I, I don't want to say that that is uh, as an absolute statement. Of course, um, you know, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And, and we ought to trust in that. But ultimately, I think for the, the, for the time being, um, you know, I, I had decided it just wasn't something that I wanted to align myself with. And, you know, there's a lot of different opinions uh, as to whether that that's uh, a good and right decision. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of felt personally, not that I had any kind of influence of, of significance within the convention. But, you know, if, if I viewed it as a sinking ship, I, I really wanted to be one of the last guys off. And, and until I reached the point where I just thought, I, you know, I, I think it, I think it's going down. And so uh, now that, I mean, you know, so I, 
I've only just been watching the SBC um, from a distance. You know, I'm, I'm not involved in, in, I'm not going to annual meetings or I'm, I'm not involved in, in state or, or um, you know, county associational meetings. Uh, and so uh, that, that's where things currently stand for me. Um, you know, I think this thing with, with Barber, uh, I agree with everything that Jeff said. Uh, I think that, that he is, he's been, he's been petty and, um, you know, even when he gets caught, like he has now, you know, there's no apology that's come forth and, and I wouldn't hold my breath on, on getting, uh, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, I've been in different online groups and forums where, you know, Bart was a, a part of that, you know, well before he, he got to where he is now. And it really wasn't any different there. And so it seems to be a pattern. And so I'm hoping as someone, again, not involved in the SBC that, you know, maybe this will be, uh, you know, this this will be a, a repeat of, of um, things that, that went down with Ed Litton and, and you know, Bart can uh, step aside and somebody else can come in and, but beyond that, you know, that I, I don't, I don't have uh, much of an opinion. I, I want to see the SBC um, do well and, uh, you know, have a, uh, a resurgence of, of, I think, genuine, sincere um, biblical convictions in, in terms of leading uh, the convention and just need the right guy to do it. And you know, I'm not embarrassed to say I, I, Bart's not the guy. Yeah. So uh, all I'll add is I'm not a I'm not a member of the SBC nor have I ever been a member of the SBC. So I I don't I don't have as much to say about the internal I guess uh, anything specific to that doctrine. But what I what I see here is I see patterns you see across evangelical institutions writ large. There's nothing there's nothing unique about how these people behave. And in many ways, I think the the more orthodox the uh, the denomination tends to be there's there's some more specific differences but really the way the way establishment figures operate is a common pattern you see and and fundamentally i think it comes down to what what they're able to achieve i mean you, you the, the question i always ask is if these people if these people were elevated by our enemies uh would they do anything differently mm. and <laughs> That's that's a good heuristic. I mean, then you don't even have to judge the person's intent. I mean, I, I don't know much about Bart's history. I uh, I don't have a very good impression of it. But regardless of regardless of his motives, uh, it's in it's in the interest of generally hostile uh, of a sort of hostile regime to elevate uh, to, to play a role. And this is certainly something that you can see with Bart, where media, uh, secular, uh, secular media, Soros funded media, whatever played a meaningful role in his in his rise and, and some of his wins here and uh, and certainly in pushing him in certain directions on things like the sex sex abuse scandal I uh, scandal or I uh, made up scandals how he responds to real real problems uh, so the, the question I always ask is just judge him by judge him by who his behavior benefits and I think that one of the consistent things you'll see here is when there's a conservative denomination, they're not going to come out and call themselves liberal. I mean, that's that's a, a sure path to losing when they do that. Uh, what are they going to do? They're going to do everything they can to neuter, uh, neuter the denomination, neuter the people politically. Tell them the most holy thing they can do is is avoid anything that would be seen as 
uh, radical, which of course means anything that has the potential to have results. And that's, you, you see that everywhere from uh, the SBC to every other evangelical institution to many, uh, many movements that aren't even uh, necessarily uh, expressly Christian, but would, would pose a threat to the regime. So you can look at these patterns and sort of judge the dynamics and uh, understand what sort of person is, is put in charge here. Hmm. Yeah. If I can jump in on yeah, please. Nate's point that um, this same kind of person operates the same way within different groups. If you know anything about Brent Leatherwood's vocational history, uh, early mm -hmm. 2016 or so, he's with the Tennessee GOP. He has a position there. His boss and I think his boss's wife are uh, covertly running to primary uh, office holding GOP uh, members. And the ones they are attacking and trying to get displaced are the uh, the Trump positive uh, office holders. And so that becomes a controversy Brent's involved in. He, uh, you know, he kind of does this kamikaze run to save uh, his resume. He runs for party leadership. He's voted out and or he's, you know, he loses the election. Rather, when he loses the election, he's hired by the ERLC. And so he kind of he looks like this real epitome of the uh, the institutional parasite who attaches itself to an organization uh, and determines to subvert that organization from within and every time you kind of drop him into a new environment it's a cons you know it's a it's a conservative environment he wants to attach himself to and when he's there he will do everything he can to disrupt uh you know the the conservative moves there and so you uh, you know You've got this with his background in politics, but then you see him return to those politics with this uh, covenant shooter manifesto thing too. It's, you know, same pattern, new day, but same pattern. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Share Joel in the chat said, I was very disappointed with that press conference. Makes me wonder why they wanted to hide the content of the manifesto. Yep. That's what so many of us have been asking. And unfortunately, uh, Leatherwood is using the tithes of the SBC to make sure that that uh, stayed hidden. And I'm glad that someone had the bravery to leak it, honestly, because I think that, uh, you know, as a, as a whole, when it comes to shooters, and this is a whole other topic, so we won't chase this rabbit trail. Uh, but as a whole, when it comes to manifestos, I would I'd be fine if none of them got released if it if it was always consistently that none of them got released. But it's always only when there's a political benefit to <laughs> to the establishment that it is released and when there's something that could potentially be negative to them that it's always swept under the rug. And I think we all know why. So uh, that's just where I'll where I'll leave that for now. But I want to I want to kind of get back to basics here because we're talking about institutions, rebuilding institutions. And I want to I want to talk about this in a multifaceted way, everything from um, you know, uh, what institutions are to, um, you know, how we can uh, create new institutions through creative entrepreneurship. Um, but getting back to the basics, when we think of institutions, this is something that any of you can answer. What typically comes to mind is that would that be like the, the seven mountains of civilization or what kind of things uh, pop into your head? So I'll, I'll go here. I think that an institution is ultimately something that's both a collection of people, uh, but it's something that has a, a meaningfully uh, an identity that meaningfully goes beyond uh, just those people. So you can have a, a network, you can have a connection of people. And I would say goes beyond that in a formal way. Uh, 
as a general, I think you can, you can probably debate on the edges, the extent to which uh, something can uh, converge between a community and an institution. But I think once you have, uh, once you have an element of formal structures, formal practices, formal processes, really a formal identity uh, in, in a meaningful sense, you can think of this with corporations where they have a legal identity that allows them to do business in a separate way. That's a common one. Uh, it, it's something that is is distinct and through that tends to have a degree of influence and capital that goes beyond just the uh, the behavior of, of the people itself. And in many cases, that's that is the coordinated its ability to channel effort or energy of either resources in terms of of uh, actual uh, economic resources or whatever that it owns, but also just channel the efforts of a lot of people. You think of the SBC and there's a lot of people who have a loyalty to the SBC as an institution and they're, they're good, well-meaning people. They're going to tend to follow, they, they trust the institution. So if the institution leads them one way, they'll go that way. If the institution leads them the other way, they'll go the other way. Uh, that's not a, that's not a binding thing. Obviously Baptist polity tends to be very, very loose. But nonetheless, it's a very real form of, of credibility and credit the institution has that uh, gives it a real real pull and a real institutional power. So that, and that can be so it can be very broad and it goes beyond explicit assets or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well said. Feel free to add anything. If any of you have anything, if not, I'll jump over to my next question here. Well, I'll I'll jump in as a guy who grew up sort of a fundamentalist background. I was never part of a fundamental self-identifying fundamentalist church, but that was sort of the ethos of the the people that were formative to me uh, when I was younger. And I I came away from that maybe just by osmosis with an anti-institutional bent. Yeah. Uh, but Charles Taylor really swung me on that in that he he noted that we can't transmit values effectively without institutions. You know, a family can hand down some of their values, but if you want to do that on a massive scale, you need institutions to uh, to export those things. And that was when I started thinking much more seriously about the question of uh, can institutions be founded in such a way that they don't drift? If they do drift, can they be recovered? And I think that's still probably my primary interest. I know Nate does this 24-7. Uh, obviously, Brandon's been starting lots of good things. Um, my interest in institutions is they become a way to pass on what's best in a given culture to the next generation to build further on. Mm. Yeah. Well said. And that's, that's actually my next question, which is how do we keep conservative institutions from becoming liberal or progressive? I know that's a huge, a huge question to answer, but uh, I mean, I mean, Nate, you, you've dealt a lot with, with this kind of thing. So what kind of, uh, are there any principles that I guess you would employ to someone who's maybe trying to, trying to build a new institution of what kind of things that they can do to ensure that they don't have a liberal drift? Yes. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll go beyond there's the conventional wisdom, which is conquest law, which is that every, every institution that's not explicitly, uh, right wing will become left wing. Uh, in many ways, I think you need to take it a step further. I would say, I would say that's, that is absolutely essential, but in many ways, I sort of my theory of institutional change and of drift, it depends on in some sense, you can think of it as the uh, professional managerial class dynamics. And when an, when an institution becomes managerial uh, in this society where managerial culture in many ways is homogenous by nature and tends toward 
uh, a set of values that are certainly captive to the left uh, increasingly uh, radically, uh, there is going to be a tendency of that institution to drift. If you if you look for the sort of markers that are associated with professionalization of an organization uh, and, and you accept the credentials of the standard professional uh, uh, associations or the, the standard sort of professional status symbols, those people are going to have a, by and large, unless they are explicitly willing to uh, fork away from that, they're going to have a set of uh, a set of behaviors, a set of norms that pull the institution to the left. I think another one is the status hierarchy that you operate in. So if you think of when I think of status hierarchy, the example I give is uh, classical Christian school. You create a classical Christian school. In many ways, you could think of that as an explicitly right wing institution. But the moment that school uh, starts bragging to parents or prospective parents about the number of graduates that went to Harvard or went wherever uh, like that, it's it's essentially accepted as a measure of success. Uh, acceptance into a certain type of institution, which is very hostile. So you, you you voluntarily participated in a status hierarchy where you're competing with these other schools to rise based on a standard that's set by Harvard. And that standard that's set by Harvard, Harvard may accept Christian college, Christian school students, but Harvard's gonna, Harvard is going to do so in ways that are steering them in a particular direction, steering them toward the left. So I think you have this voluntary participate, a similar one would be if you the credentials you look for when you hire teachers, if you look for teachers and you brag or Christian colleges is a particular comment, right? You brag that you hired someone and he has a degree from Harvard. Well, the more you the more you look for the approval of people who come out of those institutions, I mean, what sort of people are generally going to be accepted by those elite institutions? Uh, colleges, I think the evangelical world is particularly vulnerable to this. Uh, Presbyterian, I would say, where I'm Presbyterian, I think is particularly vulnerable. A lot of people... A lot of people convert to Presbyterianism uh, for status reasons. They, ha they have sort of a status insecurity. They come from a Baptist background. Like Jeff was saying, there's sort of an anti-institutionalism. Uh, there can be an anti-intellectualism. I would say in many ways, those traits, they have their flaws. Uh, they, they also have their virtues. And those people tend to, in some ways, be uh, less focused on the status-seeking behavior, which, which insulates them against certain, certain of these things. But people who exit that, are drawn to what are seen as the sort of more intellectual or higher status ones. I think you really saw this particularly with the riot, with the sort of popularity of Keller and the association of that with New York City and Walsh and sort of success in that world. You had a lot of people who were drawn for that type of reason into a denomination like that. And and so you're going to end up with a lot, of, a lot of dynamics where they really value people who have those worldly status measures. Uh, we also, because it's so fragmented, we often have less of our own internal institutions that have this sort of recognized elite status. So uh, historically, a lot of Protestant denominations, including a lot of evangelical ones, have valued elite uh, elite degrees in our pastors. I mean, and there was a time where to be really respected, it was sort of really good to have a degree from England or whatever. Well, again, you're accepting someone else's hierarchy. And to me, it doesn't matter how you define yourself, uh, how right wing you define yourself. Once you start voluntarily submitting to a hierarchy like that, you're going to feel the inexorable drift of uh, of the incentives within the system that you have joined. And so I think that the, the way to avoid that is to be very conscious of what you are joining, very conscious of the standard that you set, the standard that you are willing to submit yourself to. And uh, and really what you as small as sort of what you 
can brag about even in a uh, more informal sense, those sorts of things are, they are recognized and they, they do start to communicate the values and incentives of the institution uh, to other people in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Brandon. So you're a small business owner. And so I wanted to turn it to you because in a way you're sort of at the, the beginning stages of what could potentially become a major institution one day. You know, when you think about uh, small businesses that became large, I mean, it's, that's going to be every fortune 500 company, really, when you think about it, um, Starbucks started as a small business and I'm going to use them as an example, since of course you're in the coffee business. Um, but, uh, you know, when you think about Starbucks and the impact that they've had on society, obviously you can talk about the donations that they've made with their fortune and things like that. But but outside of just the money and uh, the different things that maybe they've lobbied for, um, Starbucks as a whole is just a cultural phenomenon. I mean, you, you think about how many individuals, even within the church, and you can even maybe say, especially within the church, um, have gone through a Starbucks drive through once a week or more for several years at a time i mean that has an impact you know the the people that they hire the the small interactions that they have they can shape a person slowly bit by bit uh maybe very incrementally but sure enough that is uh that is a institution that is able to influence uh, the culture. And again, I'm using coffee as an example to relate it to you, but what kind of things are you doing now as you're in sort of the early stages where you still have a small business and you'd call yourself a small business owner, but what kind of things are you doing now planning for uh, the fact that you could one day grow, uh, maybe unexpectedly so, um, and, and we pray for that. We pray that you're blessed in that way. Uh, but what kind of steps are you taking right now to kind of uh, set yourself up for success in the long run to still have your values be shown, um, despite maybe the size of growth that your business might encounter? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think Nate touched on a lot of good things that, that, you know, we spend time thinking about, I think, you know, with, with kind of this, the rot that, it, that takes place within institutions, of course, is, you know, as they grow and, and, and expand and, you know, there, there tends to be almost inevitably, I think, you know, deviations from the, the, the overall, you know, vision or mission of what that organization is, is seeking to do. And so, you know, I think now certainly doesn't make us exempt from that, but, you know, we're, we are very small and, the the desire is um you know within our 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 vision our, our mission of who we want to be as an organization is you know i mean we we are a, a coffee roasting business that uh, as silly as it might sound i mean I, I don't mean to imply this is silly but you know we we want to glorify god in in all that we through through coffee and so you know here's this thing that that so many people enjoy and, and Starbucks has done a great job in, in terms of just marketing it and making the world think that it's great coffee and, and how it's just become kind of this cultural staple. Um, you know, there are churches in my community who have Starbucks inside their churches. Uh, and so, you know, for, for us, it, it's, you know, I, I, I hope and pray if it be the Lord's will that, that our, our business grows and, becomes wildly successful. Um, but you know, the, the thing I am first before a coffee roaster and, 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 and a business owner is, is a pastor. So I don't ever, 
I'm guarding myself against that by not wanting that to overshadow the work that I do uh, as, as a pastor. But also, you know, our our desire is to honor the Lord in, in the work that we do and to really take business, um, certainly within the uh, the world of, of the church, uh, is to take as much business away from the Starbucks and, and the Black Rifles and all the other and the Duncans. Um, of um, the, the way that we seek to do business and the way that we seek to um, to operate with integrity and um, uh, within a biblical worldview and seek to honor the Lord. And so, so I say all that to say we don't ever want to drift or deviate from that. Of course, I know that's going to be the risk as when we grow. Um, you know, I, I won't be able to do this forever. And so, um, you know, touching on something that 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 Jeff, I think Jeff mentioned is, you know, we're, we're seeking to build this business uh, really right now from with, with inside the, the family and others are included teaching our kids how to, how to operate and run this business and, and build generational wealth and hand it over uh, to generations to come. And so, uh, you know, our, our desire, I, I guess really in, in all of this to answer the question, our desire isn't to become Starbucks. Um, I don't think we ever will. And, you know, again, the Lord can do what he wants. But and so um, that's not my that's not my target. That's not the thing that I'm after. I'm after all of those things that I just previously mentioned. And so uh, wanting to to stay really dialed into that in, in the way that I operate the business and interact with our customers and people who support us and, you know, with, with customer service and, and a quality product um, and you know, just continue to to partner with uh, other Christians and Christian organizations as we have, um, and the business has been has been blessed as a result of that. And so, um, you know, it it may, uh, admittedly, it may be a bit naive of me to say that because that's the way we want to operate, that that's the way we're going to to always seek to operate. I know that within organizations that grow or even churches and pastors churches. We've seen this with guys like, like Driscoll and Chandler and others, uh, you know, that, that, that the bigger they get and the, and, and the more influence and, and, and fame and notoriety that they get, we see the, the drift that takes place. And so um, I, I guess all of that is to say, I, I don't, I don't want to become Starbucks, take as much business as I can from Starbucks, but um, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm trusting the, the success and growth or, or even the failure of our business to, to the Lord. And I'm instilling uh, that principle in, in my kids and I'm letting everybody that does business with us know that, that that's the way I view it. Hmm. So what keeps people from starting these institutions? Because obviously we need to have good institutions. I mean, a lot of what you described there, Brandon, like it, it's awesome that you can, you know, use your small business to uh, to ultimately be a, a platform for you to teach your your children. Uh, I mean, and to disciple them. I mean, that's that's an incredible opportunity. Um, but in general, I, I I think there's a lot of things that potentially keep people. But but oh, go ahead. Sorry, what was that? Oh, I think I think uh, we had a little lag there in the internet. So, uh, anyways, uh, but I think one of the things that keeps people 
for my observation, I think growing up, men have been sold a lie that their vocation is considered less than if they are not going to be a missionary or going to pastor a church. And I think that we need a lot more uh, creative entrepreneurs who are willing, willing to take risks. So uh, maybe, maybe we can kind of go around the horn and speak to that a little bit, because I think that uh, a, a theological understanding of vocation, I mean, we just have, we just have a lack of depth in America. And I think that that has really neutered a lot of Christian men from being risk takers. Well, I mean, Nate does this probably all day, every day to some degree, right, Nate? I mean, you're you're self-consciously trying to launch people of various different uh, industries into business success. You probably have a, a clearer insight than anybody. I, I'll say for my own part, I've been involved in planting a classical Christian school. Um, when it came time to, you know, to seek a, a pastorate, uh, for my own convictions, this isn't the way that I think everybody has to do it, but I sought a uh, existing church to reform rather than planting a new one. Uh, I do think I'm the kind of guy who has, uh, you know, can kind of see what needs to be done. But what what hinders me is uh, administrative horsepower. I feel like I can see where where things need to go. But uh, and even if I see the steps between here and where we need to be um, moving us along, uh, sometimes seems daunting or I'll, I'll lose the thread a little bit in between. So, I mean, again, I'll defer to these other guys who are doing more of it than I am, but that, that, that idea of uh, administrative horsepower is my hangup. So I, uh, I, this is, this is certainly something I spend a lot of time thinking about. I think that the, the opportunity is absolutely there. I mean, I look at, I look at, entrepreneurship venture as it's about building the world that we want to live in. It's, it's really about a, a very practical uh, aspect of fulfilling that dominion mandate about, about uh, coming up with something and creating it. Uh, I think channeling in many ways, what God did in Genesis one, we're made in his image. The first thing God did is he created something out of nothing. I think that's what, uh, that's what it goes into creating a new institution. Uh, it's also uh, very hard, uh, incredibly hard. And uh, you you think of the curse and uh, the earth will bear thorns and thistles. And I think in many ways, uh, what we've seen today is we, we have a world where uh, life need not be that hard for a lot of people. I mean, it, it, we're a very rich country and there's a lot of ways to, uh, there, there's often a lot of ways to uh, earn money that are a lot easier than building something new. And in many ways, uh, hmm. That's, uh, I think, particularly for people who can sort of play the professional game well. Uh, and, and if you can play that well, you can, you can live well and you, you live well in comfort by, uh, by not doing anything that's going to threaten. Now, I think, I think that can be an illusion. I think in many ways you're, you're, uh, you're living well, but uh, you're, you're very subject to a fragile system. You're not actually building the skills that are going to enable you to deal with the broader range of scenarios. So I think that itself is a little bit of illusion, an illusion of how secure the alternative is. Uh, but that's that's always a temptation. So, uh, I mean, the example I give is you can go to work at a big law firm and uh, you can work in a very narrow specialty and uh, build a career in, in that. But there's really not a lot of alternative ways of living any sort of lifestyle comparable to what you're living there. Uh, whereas if you learn to, let's say, 
hang your own shingle and you learn to get business and you learn to perhaps even do contingency plaintiff's work uh, as an example, uh, suing people uh, who have been discriminated against because they're white or because they're Christians or uh, suing on behalf of those people or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. that's uh, not traditionally part of the paths that we're steered toward. Uh, those skills are actually pretty robust. There's a sort of scrappiness. There's an entrepreneurship that, that, that mean that there's a lot of scenarios where you're going to be able to adapt to figure things out. You're not dependent on essentially testing your way into a job and then continuing to apply those same skills uh, to depend on someone else's paycheck. So I think there's a, uh, there's, there's an easy, te- there's a temptation toward the easy. Uh, and we in particular on the dissident side are not going to get the easy, the easy entrepreneurship. I don't think entrepreneurship is ever really that easy, uh, but certainly there are paths that are sort of favored within the dominant uh, view where there's going to be a lot more easy venture capital or whatever. Uh, that's that's fundamentally, I, I would say that's probably 80% of it. Uh, but then I think another one is the lack of positive vision. And this goes to this goes to a little bit of uh, what you mentioned in terms of where people are steered. We're steered toward a very narrow sort of vocation. Uh, but it also goes to, I think, the nature of the conservative uh, movement. The conservative movement has always, in some ways, it sort of fundamentally celebrates preserving the good things of the past. Like, mm-hmm. what are the good values that we that we can recognize? And, and that's actually a cop-out. It's kind of a, a way to sidestep the foundational question. If it's all mm-hmm. about preserving the good things of the past, you don't really need to ask the foundational questions about, uh, why those are good and what what in a world where they don't exist we should we should aspire to, uh, which which is both a sort of cop out from dealing with that and it's a way to uh, it's a way to actually have a movement that's a little more I think acceptable to it's actually acceptable to the other side acceptable opposition. Uh, we as Christians don't have to be captive to that. We we have a foundation to figure out what the world should look like, not just not just what we like about what already exists, but what we should be fighting for and what we should be building. So I think a movement that's defined itself as conservative uh, tends not to, uh, we're very big on, and conservatives are very big on investing in existing institutions. And they often put their head down and invest in strengthening the existing institution while the left comes in and co-ops the thing uh, right around them because they're just not not very savvy political players. But I uh, we're, we're very good, big about sort of investing in the existing institutions, uh, but it's not a movement that uh, elevates new ones the same way or provides the vision or really points people toward the vision to inspire them to go build those. Yeah, I would echo 100% of what Nate just said. I think that, you know, it's a combination of men in particular who just lack courage and a mission. To go and do something and you know some of that reason why it's lacking or probably a lot of the reason why that's lacking is is yeah because just men have been have been taught have been have been programmed to you know just just stick with what you know just do you know just just work the work the job and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with with you know the, the guy that just works the you know like my father-in-law who's worked the same job since the day that he graduated from high school and um in a small town you know um that's great but yeah if if we are 
and we should want to, we should feel the, the call to do so. Maybe not everybody, but we ought to build, we ought to take ground. And in order to do that, we, we have to step out. We, you know, I've, I've, I'd never operated a business before. And so, um, you know, I, I wasn't afraid to try a new thing, even though I didn't have a clue how to do it. I just, you know, there, there was a day where I didn't know how to roast coffee either. And I just, I wanted to learn. And so I stepped out and I, I found resources and I taught myself how to do it. And so I've done the same thing with, with, with running a business is seeking out other good Christian uh, men and, and individuals who can give me guidance along the way. And, you know, you can't be afraid to make mistakes along the way. And so I think those are big hindrances, I think, for the vast majority of people. And obviously, I mean, there's there's the economic portion, too, that, that you mentioned, Nate. Uh, I mean, it doesn't help that <laughs> our economic outlook uh, in our country is is seems to be getting worse by the day. Um, but but that is a realistic struggle that someone who wants to start a new business uh, or any kind of institution is going to have to reconcile with. So, uh, Nate, since you've done this so much more than the rest of us, what kind of creative things have you found in your time? Um, you know, helping individuals kind of get started um, for overcoming the disparity of funding as well as, um, you know, just creative ways in general for individuals to just find their own their own funds to <laughs> to start their own business, for example. I mean, because we live in a day and age where so much a larger percentage of a person's income is going towards their mortgage because interest rates have gone up or going towards rent because in my opinion they're trying to start a uh, they're trying to create a permanent renting class so rent is going up so that a person can't really afford to put money away to buy a home so you know let alone start a business so what kind of creative solutions have you found over your time doing this so i think one day one to keep in mind that can give us some hope is i uh, Often the best businesses don't come from uh, venture capital. And I say this as someone who has a venture fund and is investing in businesses. And I think it's great to uh, it, it's great to see the leverage that can have. But in many, many cases, you don't need venture capital to launch a business. And, and I think increasingly, uh, as interest rates go up and cost of capital goes up, availability of capital goes down, those entrepreneurs who know how to uh, survive without external capital have a significant advantage. If you've been spoiled with cheap capital uh, and never learned those skills, there's a good chance you're going to fail. There's a good chance your business is just going to go bankrupt or run out of money uh, in a world where that cheap capital disappears. If you never had that capital in the first place, you're learning a set of skills where the uh, the, the change in uh, the availability of capital, there's a pretty sharp one in the last couple of years, uh, may not have mattered much to you. Uh, so, and, and what does that do? It means that you, if you're competing with the, the capital-backed businesses, you now have an opportunity to pretty rapidly gain some traction on them. So that's one. I mean, that's not a creative idea. That's just a, a reality that I think should give us hope and encourage us uh, in this space. I think another one is there's more leverage than ever through technology. I mean, technology, you can think of technology as a, uh, substitute for capital as a source of leverage. So uh, again, that goes back to my first point, though, a lot of creativity, uh, a lot of creativity 
can be implemented through technology in a way that uh, significantly limits the amount of capital that business requires while allowing you to, to nonetheless scale it uh, significantly. And then I think the last one I'll give is uh, audience as a uh, audience as a or, or target market interested target market as a substitute. And we're uh, we're in this space. We're in the space where we have networks of Christians who increasingly Christians, conservatives, whatever, who increasingly want to do business with people who share their values. Uh, finding distribution, getting a customer, getting an early customer, again, can be a substitute for capital. Uh, you you obviously can go out and you can build the product and then you can go sell the product. And risk is you're actually building something somewhat wrong. Uh, if you go find an early customer who's willing to take a risk on you uh, before everything's ready, when things are imperfect, uh, you you can potentially use, let's say if, for an enterprise thing, you might even get a deposit on that that contract or you get them to pay you on terms that that allow you to pay as you go or do it on the side, do a sort of a decent amount of time on the side. You're, you're taking a risk, but it's not as big a risk when you know you have that customer and you know what you want to provide them. And that's uh, uh, that's something that, well, what, what type of customer is going to be most willing to take a risk on you when you're uh, when it's still rough around the edges? Someone who's profoundly dissatisfied with the status quo. Uh, often it's someone who likes what you're offering compared to the status quo. And in many, many cases, those who are most dissatisfied with the status quo uh, are going to be Christians. And the example I give is, is a lot of the early adopters and a lot of movements fit this model. So coming to the new world, who were the early adopters, so to speak, of America? It was First, it was sort of the libertarian individualists, the trappers and the traders, uh, similar to the sort of early people in crypto right now, let's say. But I... Uh, Next, the first communities to move there were deeply religious, profoundly dissatisfied with the status quo. And uh, that's, we have access, there's sort of a, a doctrine that's increasingly rising in the Silicon Valley, which is uh, first build the audience, then build the product. Uh, hmm. And uh, you can almost think of building the audience as the equivalent of capital. I mean, those are substitutes. You can raise the capital, you build the product, and then you sell it to the, sell it to the market. But if you build the audience first, that's a substitute for capital. And now you, you figure out what they need and deliver it to them. Uh, so uh, what are we doing right now? We're going and talking, using the leverage of technology to, uh, to an audience who shares our values and probably needs things that we may be able to offer them. So uh, that's a, uh, that, that is something that sets us up to... Uh, go build businesses that are going to be more capital efficient than uh, let's say the conventional Silicon Valley model. Connor, I may be the only one uh, affected this way, but I just stopped being able to hear you while you were talking. Yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't hear him either. How's this? Is this any better? Oh, yeah, there works. you are. Yeah. All right, That's, all right, there we go. The chat to tell you that, but yeah, well, appreciate you guys' patience. Uh, so I actually I had a chat 
uh, over on Rumble that I was reading out. Um, so it's from Junior's Cow Farm. He said, can you point to an institution that was reformed or do they need to be thrown out and start fresh? So feel free, um, either one of you to jump in and answer that if you have an example of a reformed institution. Hey, uh, did you say the, the username was Junior's Cow Farm? Yes. Yes, I did. That's my people right there. Whoever Absolutely. you are, brother, God bless you. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, the uh, at one time you would have pointed to the Southern Baptist Convention. It was uh, headed very quickly mainstream, 60s, 70s, 80s. I went to school for a couple of years at Carson Newman in East Tennessee. Um, one of their distinguished alumni recipients had written a book that questioned the historical existence of Adam, you know, uh, in the late 60s. Um, and there was, an, uh, there was an intentional effort to recover a commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture that was sort of the model for um, for recovering uh, an institution suffering corruption, which is why you know, it's one of the reasons that I still stay in this fight. I want to see it happen again. I'll tell you, as a guy who's on the outside, I've been encouraged by the way the PCA has finally responded to Revoice. Um, thought there for a while that Revoice was going to go unchallenged. I mean, it looks to me like the, uh, the lay elders basically carried the weight on that for, uh, for the denomination, but I was thankful. I'm, I'm thankful for that kind of victory. And so if, you know, if, if you come to me, the first one I'm going to think of is the Southern Baptist convention. And the second would be the PCA, um, maybe not having completely been taken over by corrupting influence internally, but one that made substantial gained substantial ground within the, the institution in this, uh, at least last um, general conference or general assembly, I can't remember the terminology, but they they rebuffed it pretty resoundingly in a way that we should praise the Lord for. Mm. Yeah, this isn't necessarily an institution. I mean, it is, but it's an institution that I think is going to sway with the times. Um, but it, it's it's sort of an anecdote that I think speaks to the fact that uh, um, when when we have bottom up change, it can affect um, some top down change as well. And, and that would be uh, the state of Utah. Uh, it was their governor who I believe was originally passing uh, some really horrible legislation uh, in regards to the transgender movement. I can't remember which legislation it was. I think it had to do with uh, with some of the uh, mutilation surgeries. Um, but uh, beyond that, it also may have been potentially um men competing in women's sports may have been both. Um, but what I can tell you is it was, I believe it was in 2021 that he signed some of that legislation and uh, got absolutely lambasted for it at the time, but it didn't really, uh, didn't really flinch. Um, and then, then fast forward to the release of what is a woman by the daily wire. And uh, I would really say that's kind of the turning point when the transgender stuff started to become toxic for brands. And of course you've seen things with the bud light, uh, inc incident with, uh, sponsoring Dylan Mulvaney. Um, and really it's, it's just become more toxic to as, especially as a Republican to, uh, be throwing your support behind the transgender movement. And that same, uh, governor, I believe eventually basically, uh, reversed a lot of his previous legislation that he signed. And again, I I'm mm -hmm. doing this from memory. I don't have all those exact details, but, uh, that also reminds me, Bud Light is actually an example too. I mean, uh, at first I was upset when I heard that, uh, Bud Light was going to be the sponsor of, of, uh, of UFC. 
But uh, then I realized they're actually throwing their money behind the most conservative sport and the only one that has not been captured by the woke mind virus. Uh, and that was after a very successful boycott where where um, Anheuser-Busch lost, I think, like 30% of their worth, something ridiculous like that. And that was because of a boycott of conservative individuals. So that's I'm sure that's not a full reform. There's probably a lot of individuals that needed to be let go of that uh of that uh, business uh, in order for it to be truly reformed from the inside out. Uh, but uh, those are just some examples of, of uh, grassroots individuals making noise and seeing some positive change come about. So it, it, it can be done even from outside of the institutions. But of course, it, it takes a lot to put that pressure on, but uh, it's not impossible. Yeah, well... I want to go ahead and uh, and talk a bit about the system. Um, so currently, we live in a system that is very much uh, owned by ESG and BlackRock. And Nate, I'm sure you're very familiar with those those names. Um, I, so I guess first I'll I'll just pause here and ask: uh, is, is that something that you've come into conflict with a lot, uh, ESG and BlackRock? So we don't we don't directly play in the same world that well I, let me put it this way I I like to go insert myself into conflict uh, with with organizations <laughs> like that whether uh, whether they seek us out or not so uh, yes I am I, I, we're we're largely operating in a different space but I'm actively developing uh, a strategy and you can think of this as one of the venture projects actively developing a strategy to try to strip influence away from. Uh, from that that movement and and BlackRock particularly and and particularly the angle I see is to really help red states uh, realign their pension funds with the values of uh, their residents and uh, their their citizens and I think that that's actually what's interesting is the private sector can be very captive uh, you, you'll have and there's a lot of bureaucratic institutional resistance to change uh, whereas you can have some political actors whether it's state treasurer state legislatures who they go out there and they know that those people are the enemy and we're in a world where politicians are starting to step up and make some moves. And once once you get that, you could have a, a level of uh, momentum for change at the level of tens or hundreds of billions of dollars that you are not likely to see in uh, uh, what are sort of nominally private institutions. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, oh, bless you, Nate. Um, you kill Black Rock, and then Brandon kills Black Rifle, and my quality of life will be substantially better. I'll just live <laughs> on some white pills. The coffee will definitely improve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that probably is a low bar, but you know, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I mean, to that point, though, since there are these individuals out there like like Black Rock and the ESG movement. Um, there's a lot of times where I think uh, in order to create institutions from the ground up, you have to do it completely outside of the system. Because if you, uh, to, to your point earlier about uh, Harvard accepting uh, Christian students from private schools, you know, ultimately um, we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to use the sort of left wing uh, institutions to, give merit to our new institutions that are supposed to be right wing. I mean, and it's just, it's just setting yourself up for failure. So what can Christian men, how can Christian men become uncancelable and live outside of the system? 
I mean, does it just look like building everything from scratch, like a homestead out in the middle of nowhere, making sure that you have all your own, you know, your own food production, your own, uh, you know, water supply? I mean, does it start that that bare bones or are we needing to think more creative to not have to necessarily uh, <laughs> spend a whole generation uh, building up a new agrarian society first? I'll throw it out. Uh a thesis and it's it's sort of an early thesis but i think there's sets of one thing i did between my first business and and what i'm doing now is traveled to 65 countries in a year and and talked to a lot of people around those countries most of them were third world countries and i i know people like to say developing but that assumes they're developing and I think it's mm. a nice use of euphemism. Low trust societies is how I describe that. Mm. Uh, poor low trust societies. And there's there, there what was interesting seeing those patterns is uh, you see uh, you see things that are a little different than I think we, we imagine in many ways. I, I think there's sort of a, a, a view that I had at least going in that sort of everything's poor and everything's cheaper or whatever and everything's less. but that's not that's not the case actually. Low skill stuff is very cheap, but anything requiring certain types of middle class skill or trust actually uh, is often a lot scarcer in those countries and a lot more expensive. It's, it's like ba people would run basic construction businesses. There's a guy who ran a, I remember meeting a guy who ran a, a retail installation business uh, or build installations inside retail stores, like kind of thing that you know, someone could make a good living doing now, but it's, it's probably a, a fairly competitive business. His margins were like 40%. He was from Switzerland and he was in the Philippines. Uh, and it was 40% because there just weren't that many people who could go in and execute to sort of basic like Western standards. Uh, what was not a, we're not talking a rocket science business. It's not the most complicated business in the world. Uh, but that ability to just get things done with competence was scarce. And so I think that you can look at, you can look at, uh, and I think the second one is trust. Trust is scarce. Will the person actually do the job? Will they show up? Uh, there was an interesting story where I was arguing with a, uh, or I met a seminarian in uh, Uganda uh, at Palmer Robertson Seminary, actually. I visited Palmer Robertson out there in Uganda uh, for those who are Presbyterian, a, uh, uh, someone who stood up and helped give a speech that I think helped move uh, move the General Assembly a couple of years ago against uh, the Revoice uh, world. But I... Uh, Guy would not believe me. I told I told him, look, if you hire an American, you, you hire a contractor, uh, you put down a deposit. Uh, you know, it might not do the best job in the world, but you put down a 20% deposit, let's say, he'll probably show up and he'll probably go uh, do a sort of decent job at least. And would not believe me, could not believe, it blew his mind that someone would do that. Like, why would he not just run off and you never see him again if you give him the money? And I think those are the dynamics you see in much of the world. And you think of that and, that's a, a hard way to operate and trust is very scarce. And we have kind of two things. If we build a, if you build a set of skills uh, and I think really the intersection of physical and digital are the relevant or physical and knowledge work are the relevant ones here. Cause if it's purely information, it can be imported from anywhere. It can be done from anywhere. It can be scaled. I mean, I think there's still going to be a breakdown there, but I, uh, it, it, you can cope with the the breakdown. Well, I guess the, the the operative point is America in many ways is trending toward a low trust society like that. You see a lot of collapse. You see a lot of trends where we are moving in that direction in many ways. And uh, so, 
what types of skills could an American go who would be sort of doing okay here and go to those countries and do really well, actually. And it's often stuff where you need someone who's going to be sort of bringing that basic middle-class competence and uh, trustworthy. And uh, that could be certain types of, you could even say certain types of skilled trades. I mean, if you, uh, if you're a competent person working on the electrical grid, I, I think you'll be fine. I don't think that I, uh, I don't think when the power's out, they can afford to uh, judge you for your politics or I, uh, uh, a lot of things where there's an emergency there. So that would be a very basic level. It's like, like build a skill set that requires a, a good enough amount of work that they can't just import a bunch of people to replace you uh, very easily. Uh, so, uh, but it, but it's one that is, but it's one that, whereas if you're marketing or whatever, big corporate marketing, I mean, it's totally artificial. They can, you say the wrong thing and your, your career can be over. So you're, you're extremely fragile to the regime. Uh, and then I think our communities, and this is where I think it's not about individual autarky, but our communities, uh, we have uh, we have the ability to sort of fork away from the mainstream and build build and maintain these high trust networks where we we have norms where we maintain trust even as broader societal trust falls, and that is going to be something that is scarcer and scarcer as as people lose trust in institutions. But they're not going to want to just drop to a level of life where you can't trust anyone, you can't do business with anyone. And if we become the communities that are that people know are trusted, if we become the people they know they can rely on, we now have something that's scarce and valuable in society. And they may not like it, but they may not trust us. They may not like, or they may not like us. They may not want to follow our values, but they will know that uh, they will know that we can be intermediaries and in things uh, that. Uh, well, at the very least, we, we can be trusted intermediaries for each other. So at the very least, we can maintain a, uh, you don't have to do everything yourself if you have a, a community that you know you can trust to do business with. Uh, but second of all, I think we may actually be uh, desired in society as partners. And the example I like to give is the, the Quakers in the 17th century England, famously high trust community in a society that was lower trust. And people wanted to do business with the Quakers. They were desired intermediaries. The Quakers were not. A popular religious group. They were, I, mean, I still think they're wacky theology and kind of weird practices in a lot of ways, but they were, uh, and they certainly were thought of that way then, but they were, they were desired as intermediaries. So I think you, you figure out what we are suited to offer that is likely to be scarce and uh, then they can't afford to cancel you. Hmm. Well said. I mean, Brandon, with with your business, I mean, you probably have felt that to a degree already, given the fact that you've really marketed yourself towards a Christian audience. I mean, do, do you feel like uh, uh, like a lot of your business success has come from being someone that is trustworthy and then, of course, marketing yourself to uh, other individuals who are, uh, you know, and partnering with other individuals who are part of that high trust society? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, that it's, it's, you know, some of the things that I was, <clears throat> I was touching on earlier and, and then Nate again mentioned it just a bit ago is, you know, we, we didn't have a whole lot to start with, you know, it, we just really kind of, we, in, in all honesty, we kind of started as a business just on accident, just with, with friends and coworkers and church members and those types of things. Uh, and then it just continued to grow. We didn't have a lot to start with. And so, um, 
you know, business was doing well, um, you know, in a, in a relative sense, much more smaller than what we're, we're doing now. Um, and, and the change was <clears throat> is we took the business, you know, you know, we, we, we sought out what tools we had and social media was, was one of the easiest ones that, that we sought to capitalize upon. And so, um, we have built, uh, you know, a, a community of supporters that, you know, they, they know what we're about and, and they know what our values are. And, you know, we, we strive to have really exceptional customer service and, you know, we, we, we seek to go above and beyond in those areas where, um, you know, any number of things can happen where the, 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 you know, the customer, the supporter, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't get, um, the, the service that, that was promised. And so, you know, maybe a, a mug breaks in route, you know, in, in shipping. And so, you know, we just, we, we take that expense on the chin and we ship another one out on us shipping cost of the mug, everything. And so those types of things, or like when, uh, you know, we, we try to be really forthright with, with everyone and, and letting them know how we operate. And so again, being a small family run business, uh, we went out to, to Moscow for Grace Agenda. We let everybody know, you know, hey, everybody's gone. So um, we worked really hard uh, before we left to get out as many uh, subscription orders as we could. Um, and then everybody who got orders in while we were gone, um, you know, I just I spoke with somebody about this just on a, a podcast just a, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it hadn't occurred to me that that was, you know, that, that that's what we like. I just thought. Well, you know, people are going to want their coffee and we can't get it to them. And so we're going to let them know, hey, we're going to be out in Moscow. So um, and man, he you know, he he let me know how um, how much that meant to him just in, in um, you know, us trying to operate with integrity and, and honesty. And um, and so, yeah, you know, I think that at least for us for now, uh, I think with the, the 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 community that we are within and that we have built, um and then just the way that we we operate and and serve and service uh, the the people who buy from us um, for the time being, I think has has made us uncancelable. I hope um, within our community. Um, and and then again, like Nate was saying, you know, we 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 are selling, we are providing coffee to people who share our values, and you know, they um, they they don't want to buy coffee from you know, big global homo coffee organizations that hate the things of God. Um, they want to buy most people. Um, they want to buy from someone who has shared values. And so that's what we've sought to do. Um, you know, both just, I think from, in, in all honesty, um, a little bit um, in, in a strategic sense, but really honestly, just because that's what we think we ought to do as Christians in, in, in serving one another and providing um, something that, that people want. You know, we provide a, a product that, that people are going to most likely buy regardless. And so um, we want to make it a really easy decision for people to buy that from us. Mm -hmm. So Jeff, something that I, I was just thinking of throughout our conversation uh, because we need more individuals within 
the church that are able to provide some of these services that we take for granted that, uh, you know, we, we've pretty much outsourced to secular individuals. Um, but I feel like the church, I mentioned this earlier, but the church really pushes um, the idea that, uh, you know, the, the sort of most sanctified way uh, to use your vocation would be to go into the ministry in some form. Um, but uh, it, it often then neglects the need for technical, uh, technically skilled individuals to go into other vocations. So, I mean, I mean, why has the church pushed mission so much and shamed the plumber? Why do you think that is? Oh, I think you're mute. I am in a <laughs> hotel room and the uh, the ice machine kicked on a few minutes ago. And I didn't want oh, to solid, so. solid. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's what I was saying is it's particularly incongruous for the reform tradition because Luther was the one who sort of returned us to thinking of the cobbler as a servant of God. Right. And getting away from that medieval Catholic idea that the um, the clergy was the high calling. I mean, uh, I'm of a particular age, David Platt. And radical, or Francis Chan and Crazy Love went off like a bomb in um, in my circles. And uh, you know, thankfully for whatever reason, probably because of the anti-institutional bent I have earlier, I always kind of had a raised eyebrow to it. Ironically enough, it was um, it was Anthony Bradley, good Anthony Bradley, writing for the Acton Institute, who who showed me that that was a new kind of legalism. And I think what that really comes down to is the church, uh, you know, evangelicals are the inheritors of the great awakening tradition. We want to see people born again. We want to see their souls saved. These are all good endeavors. Um, but we are also very simplistic in boiling down the entire effort of the Christian church to just that one end. And I don't think that that is, uh, I don't think it's consistent with the, the, the vision of scripture. Uh, Christ you know, will be honored among the nations. When you think about the way, I mean, I'll say it for myself anyway, I'm not sure what your experiences are. The way we talked about being faithless Christians was getting people to pray a sinner's prayer to get saved. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you look at the, you look at the great commission. That's, that's nowhere in the great commission. They're to be made disciples taught to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And that's going to affect the way that you handle, you know, to what Nate was saying, capital, the way you relate to, um, someone that you're borrowing money from, right? Doing the kind of things that Brandon talked about, loving your neighbor well when they're your customer. You want to give them a heads up, their product might be delayed. Uh, and so I would say I, I would say we got there for my generation through some simplistic yet popular texts like David Platt and Francis Chan, but which drew on a latent um, a latent positive vision of the necessity of, of conversion but which uh, because it saw it as important, kind of reduced all of Christian life down to seeking those conversions. It's hmm. my amateur read on it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with a lot of that. Unfortunately, I, I think that's really the, <laughs> the, that's probably the, the, the layman's explanation that, you know, could easily fill multiple books if you wanted it to. But unfortunately I think you're, I think you're spot on that it was well intended, but I think there's a lot of harm because for myself, I mean, I, I, I believed I was called into the ministry 
I think in junior high. And it's like, did I really understand what that means? I, I think it was a Vody Bauckham sermon that kind of shook me out of it several years back where uh, he was talking about uh, uh, so many individuals uh, that we that the church looks at and notices that they're they're reading their Bible every day and they're actually showing an interest. I mean, those are the ones that the 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 church is immediately like, well, you must be called into ministry because you're reading your Bible every single day. And it's like, no, that should be the normal the normal life of a of an average churchgoer. You know, the the uh, the coffee maker, the plumber, the the electrician, whoever, they should be reading their Bible every single day. And just because they they show an interest and a love of Christ and his church doesn't mean that they're immediately called to go and pastor a church. But I think that if anything, it just speaks to the lack of discipline that American Christians have in general, that uh, reading your Bible every day is a sure sign that your pastor thinks that you must be ordained for the ministry. So uh, that's, that's it's unfortunate, but I think that's really what it boils down to. But yeah, feel free to jump in there, Jeff, if you had something that looked like you. Oh, just that I think it's good to have other models. I'm thankful for the way those things have kind of broken off. You know, David Platt going hardcore woke, I think probably did wake up a lot of people to be suspicious of other things he said. So you have, you know, you have the Brandons there, you have the Nates of there, uh, there who are showing themselves to be people who are concerned about the doctrines of the faith and whatnot, but that have also explored God's calling in other arenas for his glory. Those are, uh, you know, those, those are good things. And, and think about, you know, Brandon or others who, uh, you know, the language I think of tent making, we, ha we have that in, in Christian history, right? That the, uh, the clergy often supported themselves with what we would consider skilled labor uh, in the past. And so there's a whole, there's a whole lot to be recovered there. There's a whole, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm all about uh, paid clergy. I think John Owen makes a really compelling argument that that's sort of the ideal, uh, but bivocational ministry is probably our future. And uh, we need to make sure that we have provided the young men who'll be doing that with a positive vision of how honoring to God that is. Yeah. We're getting some of that. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, Nate, I wanted to turn it over to you to kind of, uh, give us a bit of an outline of what kind of goals you have for the next five years for new founding, because I think we could, uh, we could use some encouragement and a, a bit of a vision for what you guys are doing. Five years is a, uh, is a long time to, uh, to plan, but uh, I certainly have ideas of where I like to be. So I think there's kind of a, there's a few angles to what we're doing. One is I, uh, one is just continue to execute well on the venture side. It's, it's a, it's a uh, tough market in many ways in venture. Uh, it, it's actually a tough market for raising money right now. What that means is it's actually, those tend to correlate with good markets for investing. You tend to find companies, great companies at attractive prices. So uh, we uh, we need to keep going there and just keep executing, be be able to be in that position to be a, a lead check for some of the best early stage companies. And I think, there's a very clear path to owning that space entirely and being the go-to firm for any company on the right that is that is has that as part of its business thesis. So there's there's others who potentially could have done that. Someone like Teal potentially, uh, he has chosen not to pursue that. I think it's it, it may be a good thing. Uh, he doesn't share our values in important ways, and so uh, if he were the leading venture capitalist on the right, that could I, I think risk corrupting the space in some dangerous ways. Uh, so on the one hand, it means there's, there's less resources here. On the other hand, it means I think if we, if we jump in there, we, we could 
become that known name where we get the, the opportunity to work with all of the, the best founders, uh, really the best founders who should seek venture capital, to be clear, which is small minority of founders. Uh, secondly, I would love to, and we're working on a new project to uh, to try to, at a large scale, organize, uh, help organize Christian uh, communities and facilitate the organization of such communities in ways that can leverage that trust that I alluded to, uh, to facilitate the growth of uh, alternative commercial networks, alternative trust networks. I mean, that is a massive uh, untapped resource uh, that I think the more we're able to develop that, the more in turn people see a return to investing in those communities. So uh, to me, success looks like something where uh, a lot of the energy that is currently devoted in a lot of communities to getting into the right school that's going to get you into the right college. Uh, so much, there's so much sort of uh, almost sort of zero sum uh, effort put into, uh, or it's it's put into building reputation status in in a particular world that does lead to economic opportunity. If that could be devoted to investment in communities, and I don't mean this in a sort of cynical sense, like you're supposed to be worshiping, but you're thinking about the money, but uh, if there could be overlap between the networks you're building and the trust you're, the, the relationships you're building, uh, that mean there's a return on investing in, in relationships there, that that can be how you can build a career that can lead to real economic opportunity. I think that's a, that to me is the game changer, the kind of sort of localism. It's an aligned localism, a, a sort of fractal localism where obviously your church is one thing, but if you could be better connected to 10 adjacent churches, 10 sort of concentric circles of aligned Christian communities, uh, and that becomes a locus for business. Uh, there's there's some scale there. Uh, there's the ability to build legitimate business, their legitimate professional careers, uh, sort of uh, radiating out from there. That uh, that allows you to uh, do business and build your career with people where you're not going to face the same pressures to compromise your values. So uh, I view that in many ways the way a lot of people view crypto. Uh, they see the crypto world as this sort of categorical challenge to the status quo. Uh, I think it's often a very individualistic challenge. It's it's trustless technology. Uh, I think that trust almost always offers better alternatives, which has been a challenge for crypto as long as sort of the, the trust level in our society remains better than practically zero. Uh, in many ways, I think build on where we have trust uh, in ways that's going to be increasingly valuable. So I think the right model and i there is no easy path to this it's it's a hard problem but the right model of organizing people the right protocols the right uh the right platform the right networks and tools could i think that could be a game changer that could drive in many ways a a full successor to this uh this dominant regime and, and one that's poised to disrupt it so uh, do i expect to be there in five years i uh, not likely uh would i like to be well on our way where we're starting to build that foundation that we know is is robust and actually anti-fragile to broader turmoil i would i would love to see that so those are uh those are a couple that I, I think one other one that's interesting is we're, we're starting to explore uh questions around real world movement of people and congregation of people and uh in in shared communities because there's a lot of people moving and they're moving based on values right. you're starting to see these clusters and that's an area that uh, very different from a business perspective than venture, uh, but the same dynamics are driving them. So uh, those would be 
those would be uh, be three things. But ultimately, how can we help? How can we help really accelerate and serve as a uh, as a hub uh, for high finance and and uh, commerce within these uh, these really growing trends that we all recognize? Well, that's awesome. Well, that's definitely much needed work, and it's encouraging, honestly, to hear you mention all that because you know I think uh, I think right now it's easy to let things black pill a person. And uh, I try every day not to be. And uh, luckily, I think uh, every time I go looking for a white pill, I'm able to find one. And uh, and you and individuals like you, Nate, uh, often provide that for me. So thank you so much for the work that you do. I think uh, I think all of us really appreciate that. And uh, I want to go ahead and uh, go around the horn and give you all an opportunity to plug any uh, future projects that you're working on and uh, let people know where they can follow you. So Jeff, where can people go to uh, keep up with everything that you're doing? Mostly Twitter, merely Jay Wright um, on a fairly active podcast right now called Backwoods Belief. Awesome. And it's a great podcast. So I definitely recommend it. It's kind of you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Nate, where can people go to keep up with everything you're doing? Mostly Twitter as well, Nate A. Fisher. And uh, you can go to our website at newfounding.com and uh, you can find, uh, you can sign up for, uh, sign up for various lists we have, whether it be to join a fund or submit a company, join a fund as an LP or submit a company or any of that. And, and also go to AmericanReformer.org. That's that's a sister project. And I'll add for Jeff, uh, if you're driving through, uh, driving through uh, Tennessee, then uh, stop at his church. I, uh, I did that last summer, so that's awesome. We need to get you back out, Nate. That was uh, that was a treat. Awesome. Well, Brandon, where can people find you? And also, please give us your recommendation for uh, if someone wants to uh, get some coffee from you. What's the best coffee blend to start with? Uh, well, uh, I'll say mostly Twitter as well. Um, uh, my personal account is Brandon Lansdowne, and the business account is reformed coffee um because reformation coffee is is too long of a handle and uh the what the business's website is uh reformationcoffee.com so pretty active on on twitter um we have some other accounts on instagram and facebook uh, my wife runs those though not me so um and um well I'll, I'll say this: we we don't have blends. We do uh, we do single origins, um, and so uh, not to sound too snobby, but um, <laughs> which one's the best? Um, yes, all of them. Uh, it just depends on on what you like. Um, you know, we have uh, we have an Ethiopian yoga chef that's that's really it's our our best seller. It's the most popular one because um, it's just uh, African coffees are fantastic and they offer a lot of what people are are you know either what they want or what they you know what what they don't know that they want um because it's a more herbal floral uh light and bright coffee and uh i rarely find people that don't like it um guatemala is our second most popular and it's completely different from the ethiopian uh it's central american coffee and so it's more earthy chocolatey caramels those types of things um, you know, and, and for the, the, the listener who's just like, man, just, you know, coffee is coffee. Um, uh, I want to refute that claim and say that I'm happy to, to help you as I have with several people, 
Um, just, you know, our, our, our tagline is, you know, we want to reform your coffee experience. We want to improve it. We want to help you enjoy coffee more. Um, and, and to really honestly to do that to the glory of God. And so, um, you know, reach out to me on Twitter if you want to know more about coffee or brewing methods or uh, really anything and, and everything related to coffee. Awesome. I, do have, I, I will say this. I do have our first blend, which is an espresso blend that I'm, I'm working on now and hope to have it available soon. There we go. So you did have an answer for the best blend. <laughs> awesome. My best blend, yeah, because my only one. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. We really appreciate you consuming this content on whatever platform you prefer. Feel free to uh, share the video, like the video, give the, the podcast five stars. We really appreciate any uh, feedback you can give us and we will go ahead and see you next time.